church at this time, my kids, and Mr. Billy Brooks is our shepherd this morning, our shepherd teacher going there. Uh, Brian, worship team, I got a request to make. Can we sing that hymn next Sunday as well, same place, same time, same back channel? We don't think about heaven enough. Uh, We really don't, and that's next week's message as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It starts at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm only going to read the first 12 verses, even though we're going through all of 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to pick up with the very end of 1 Thessalonians 4 next week because we're going to be talking about the return of Christ. You know, we're going to talk about uh, the return of Christ. You know, is, is there a rapture? You know, what does the Bible say about a rapture? What if, I'm, what if I'm away from Charleston when Jesus returns? Because you know he's only going to return in Charleston, right? The holy city? I mean, is he, does he, I mean, how will I know that he's returning? And, I mean, is he going to return in my lifetime? And what's the big deal anyway, you know, because I kind of not thought a lot about the return of Christ and, then, and, and all that stuff because... The people that talk about that are crazy. You know? So why is Paul even writing about this? Well, one of the reasons that he's writing about it, and this was a wonderful congregation. This is a congregation that we at Two Rivers want to be like. Folks, this was a big little church. They were a little church. They were three weeks old. And we are three years old, a little bit over. They were, they were in a situation, they were in a coastal community that was the second largest city in the Grecian province known as Macedonia. We're in North Charleston right now. We're the third largest city. We're a coastal city in South Carolina. Unlike, unlike us, Uh, since uh, post-9-11, they got every one of the ships that came into this community of Thessalonica would have both ships, servants, and slaves that would come into the marketplace and some of them would decide to either run away and escape into the streets of Thessalonica and some would just visit the brothels, visit the, the wineries. They would have inter, interchange or intercourse, as it were, with the population so that there was this constant element coming in from the ports. Constant challenges to the cultural mores or standards of behavior. Very similar to Charleston, even though we don't have people getting off the ship now post 9-11 doing that we still have challenges to what used to be a very moral culture. All sorts of influences. And it may not be because people are coming into our home. It may be because it's through the Internet or through TV. So in many ways, this little church was challenged to not only exist and to live, but actually continue to thrive all the while not in... They're loving and worshiping Jesus Christ who they had put aside as it says in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. It says, 
We've received the word of how you turn to God from idols. So they had put aside the idols. They are now worshiping Jesus Christ. And Paul, in this letter, he has been there three weeks and then he had to leave because of a riot. You can read this in Acts 17 where he's writing from Corinth. He's writing to this church and he's saying, I want you in essence to be mindful that you love Jesus and you worship Jesus and that love is attractive and it is attractive to all the people around you because as you love Jesus and you realize he loves you, you're starting to love other people. But be mindful. Your faith is built on love of Jesus and because you love him, you obey him. And now, in this letter, he turns from the things that he has said, and he begins now in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, finally, he's working toward a conclusion. But he's saying, I've built the foundation, and I've talked to you about these things. Now, I want to talk to you about holiness. Now, I want to talk to you about obedience. Now, that you love Jesus, I want to talk to you about how it's incumbent upon you to obey. Obey him who loves your soul. So, I'm going to read this, and then I want you to see uh, two things. Number one, I want to look a little more specifically about what it means to be called to a life of holiness. Okay? And some of you need to put on your big boy pants already because you're not going to like or you're going to have some of your thinking maybe a little bit challenged. Okay? Secondly, I want to give you an example. Paul gives two examples, one of which I'm not going to cover. He gives an example of sexual purity. That's the example I want to talk about in a call to holiness. The second example that he gives is he gives about laziness. He says, look, don't be a burden, and we don't have these scriptures in the first 12. Well, we do have these scriptures in the first 12 verses. It's verses 9 through 12, so I'm not going to really cover that. But he talks about don't, be, don't just quit your job once you become a Christian and say God's going to take care of me because what that looks like is the church takes care of you. And he's saying don't be a bum in the midst of the church. Go out and get a job. But it also, commentators believe that there were people who believed they were so hopeful that Jesus Christ would return very soon that they sold their possessions and they lived off those after the they lived off the proceeds thinking wow I might as well why own anything Jesus is going to return like today or maybe next week and Paul said not necessarily that's next week's sermon so some people were not working they were just sitting and waiting for Jesus to come. And he was saying, uh-uh, get out there and work. And while you're at it, obey. Okay. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body. Some of you guys have a footnote for body. You might look at that. In holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may not live properly so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would allow me to be very... Father, there are just so many ways, um, so many ways, so many directions um, that we could go from here. But I just ask that you would help me, even as you, Holy Spirit, inspired and guided and instructed Paul to write and to meet the needs of this young fledgling congregation in Thessalonica, that you would guide me, that you would help me to speak from your word as a spokesman, as a preacher, as a mouthpiece this morning to meet the needs of you who know the hearts of two rivers, congregants, that you would allow me to so speak from your word, to speak to the heart and to speak to the need, and to speak with all grace for the promise of power from Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, I'm going to give you a warning. It's 1110, and my watch is going to go off at 1125, and that is not the end of the sermon. That's the, that's the cue to me to start circling the landing field to land. So if you're a visitor and you hear that and you're like, wow, man, you know, I guess he's got to end right now, but it sounds like he's still in the introduction. No, it means that I'm circling and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land and I'm mindful of it. Um, we say that we have a 75-minute service because we celebrate communion every Sunday. That's the conclusion of the message. That's, that's where it ends up. It ends up because it's all about Jesus. It's not about us being stronger it's about us being more dependent upon His strength and feeding upon His grace, feeding upon His power, and then I can obey. But I want to tell you a couple of things this morning, as I said already. First of all, I want to talk about the call to holiness. And secondly, I want to talk about an example, and that example of a call to a holy life has to do with sexual purity as outlined by the Apostle Paul. Before I do that, I've got a couple of things by way of introducing those two points that you need to know. Look in your Bible. Verse 1, Paul says, We ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought 
to live. Does anybody, I've got an English Standard Version, does anybody have another word for ought? Anybody? NIV? NASB? King James? New King James? Anybody got another word for ought? Okay. Ought is way too light. Ought. You ought to live like this. You know, you ought to be holy. You ought to obey. Well, I'm going to tell you, with a liberal Western mindset, we take ought and we use it for license many times. When faced with the law of God, you have two choices. You can say, I am going to be a legalist. I'm going to obey every one of those ten commands. Um, I am going to, uh, when he says don't, I don't, and I'm going to obey. Well, let's just take one for example. Let's just say that um, we're going to take adultery. I will not commit adultery. I'll never put myself in that situation. I'm never going to be tempted. I, you know, I am just going to, I am just going to be that way. And then Jesus comes along and he says, even if you think lustfully of another person, you've committed adultery. And we're like, whoa, wait a minute. You can't, you can't completely control everything that you think, particularly in our culture and society. So a legalist, what he begins to do is he begins to lighten up on the standard. He begins, for instance, if, if he takes, uh, for example, do not lie, then he finds out that he is actually lying to a certain degree when he takes credit for something that is maybe not completely his own. Or when he begins to fudge a little bit, what he does is he says, well, I didn't exactly lie, I just didn't tell the whole truth. So a legalist finds that he can't obey perfectly, so he begins to lighten up the standard. But the libertarian will take license with God's law, and he says, you know what, it's all grace. It's all God's grace. He's you know, he's, Jesus Christ was the only perfect law keeper. And he did that as my substitute in my place. And now I'm a son and daughter. And so, who cares? Well, you're abusing God's grace. And I'm going to question, the Bible does, I'm going to question whether you really get it. Oh, well, you know what, God? He just, he's just like that grandfather who just kind of wink winks and gives me candy out of his pocket. He, you know, he doesn't really care. He does cost of his son. Do you realize now that as a Christian, you are not only called by, by um, Paul to holiness, but God looks at you and he says, Christ has now, by his work, he's, his perfect obedience to the law on the cross, when you receive his death on your behalf, you now have a power to actually obey. And too many of us just excuse it and say, well, nobody's perfect, and you can't go for perfection. Go for it. Do I believe that you are going to be perfect in this life? No, I don't. But try. Too many of us don't even try because we look at holiness as something very burdensome. So the word there, ought, is the word in Greek, D-E-I, dei. Not deo God. Dei. Let me tell you how important that word is. I won't look there now, but in Matthew 16, beginning with verse 21, Jesus Christ with his disciples, he said, the Son of Man 
Dei, go to Jerusalem. The word Dei there is the word for must. The Son of Man, Dei, must go to Jerusalem. And there he will be falsely tried. He will be beaten. He will be mocked. He must be. And he must be crucified. He must die there. He must Dei. Not, and so if you come along and you say, well, you ought to live a holy life, was Jesus saying, well, you know what? I ought to go to Jerusalem. I ought to die in your place. Now he was saying, I must. And you know what happens? Peter says, must you? Ought you? One of the only times that a man is actually looked at by Jesus and says, I'm going to name you Satan. <laughs> I named you Rock. But right now, you're acting like Satan because you're trying to tempt me to disobey God when I just told you Dei. All right, I told you. This text can wear you out because it's a fresh call to holiness. All right, the call to holiness. It's not an ought. It's must. And it's must exclamation mark, which means imperative. You must obey. In other words, here's how it re re reads. Finally, brothers, we ask, we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you must live and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. What he is saying is earlier in our series, I talked about what they were doing. He says, you've got a strong faith that's holding up even in persecution and trials. I got run out of town, but you're hanging in there. And I'm amazed. I'm so worried about you, and I'm so anxious as I'm far away in Corinth. But you're, every word that reaches me tells me that you are more and more in love. And you're laboring in that love. And you're serving even in the face of persecution of that love. And so I'm just asking that you just keep doing that more and more. Just keep doing what you're doing. But be mindful that as you're doing that, that you're growing in holiness. And that you're just going to, you're going to live to please God. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Okay, quick test. Uh, you know, there was a survey that just came out this last week. And the survey was about, no, about Bible knowledge. And not simply the Bible, but the knowledge of religion, including world religions, comparative religions. And what the press really wanted to say was, was I thought it was tricky. What they really wanted to say was that atheists and those outside of religion they had a better grasp of religious knowledge than Protestants and Catholics and Jewish people, adherents of religion. But the questions they were asking was like the Dalai Lama. Which religion is he associated with? Buddhism. Shivu. Which god, which religion does that god do the adherence of that God and his, his 
policies or rules and regulations. What world religion is that? Hinduism. What century was Mormonism founded? 19th century. Okay. All right. Now, it asks some Bible questions. Like, what's the first book of the Bible? Okay. All right. What, who wrote the Ten Commandments? All right. I'm leading up to something here. Where, actually, God wrote them. Moses wrote them down. Tricky, tricky. What book in the Bible would you find the Ten Commandments? Not chapter. I'm not going to press you for that. But what book in the Bible would you find the Ten Commandments? Exodus. Exodus, there's two. Deuteronomy as well. Exodus chapter 20. Now, what? Last question. Well, I've got two questions. What was the first commandment? No. No. It's a do not. What? That's the preamble. And before he wrote the... That's right. Have no other gods before me. Who kept in the New Testament who obeyed Every who obeyed God and who kept every one of the commandments? Only Jesus. And did he do it dutifully or did he do it with joy? He did it with joy. I like what Eugene Peterson in the message writes about this first verse. And I'm really, this is, this is the call to holiness. It's a principle here that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you need to nail down this principle. Because adherents of other religions will look at us as Christians and they don't get the principle and they would accuse us of obeying God, of, of following His call to holiness for a different reason, a different principle. Eugene Peterson writes that, taking up the words, please God, that we are to live to please God, not in a dogged religious plod, but in a living, spirited dance. In other words, God's people are called to holiness in their desire to please God. The fuel for your obedience is a desire to please God. Now, the world looks at you and they say, you obey out of fear of His displeasure. You obey God only out of fear, not joy. The world looks at you and they say, you religiously plod along dutifully. If I can say anything about the law of God, I will tell you this. God does not call us to obey out of fear. He calls us to obey out of great joy. As, and I, I, I like Peterson's word, in a living, spirited dance. Okay, think about the last wedding that you went to. The last wedding that you went to, probably t- typical reception where they got a dance floor set out there. You know, there's a dinner or a buffet set up. 
And then the first dance, the DJ comes out and he says, Now, ladies and gentlemen, family and friends, we want to introduce the new happy couple for the first dance. And the bride comes out, and she's radiant, and the groom comes out, and they join hands. And what do you think they play? What's, every wedding that I've done recently has played this. Now, Corey and Annie, I've got to think. What was, what was the song that they played for the first dance, for your first dance? Uh, crazy. <laughs> okay, you're not making my point. The, it's at last. At last. At last, my love has come along. My lonely days are over. And then he keeps going with a final conclusion where the singer says, you know, my only, my true love, mine, has come along. That's what obedience looks like. That's what obedience that is prompted by the pleasure of God looks like. It is not so much obedience to rules and regulations and institutional commands. It's a relationship. Do you think the groom gets out there and says, okay, let's dance. Did I get it right? Okay, good. Now some of them look pretty stiff. But he's probably already I know many a groom taking dance classes so that when they get there, it's fluid. But he doesn't say, okay, i got to do this crazy dance with this gal. He's like, I love this. Even if I don't like crowds, I can do this because I'm with you. It's a living, spirited dance. I obey because his pleasure is on me. And I live to please him. Fear is a fear of punishment. God will discipline us when we disobey or when we fail to obey. God will discipline us, but He doesn't punish you. He doesn't judge you. He doesn't throw you overboard. He doesn't reject you. He treats you as a son. And every son says, I want to please my father. That's what prompts us to obedience. I can't, I can't stay with this any longer because I've got to give you this uh, quick example. But I would tell you that if you want to look uh, at some side passages, look at Matthew 11, verse 29. And Jesus looks and he says, I have a yoke for you and it's far lighter. In other words, the commands of God. And my desires for you to live for Him and to live as a people that you were meant to live, that is far lighter than the yoke that you're currently under. A yoke that Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 1 is a yoke of slavery. John 10.10 is where the shepherd says, Jesus Christ says to His disciples as a form of a shepherd, He says, I'm the good shepherd. And unlike the thief who comes and he lies to you, 
only to destroy you? He lies to you and he says, this will be fun. This is what you really want. This is great. Everybody's doing it. Or this is easier than that. Don't sacrifice for that. He lies to you to destroy you. But he says, I'm the good shepherd and I've come and I speak to you. Follow my voice so that you can have life and that abundantly. In other words, the commands of God and the call to, to live like Him and to be holy as He is holy is not inhibiting, it's freeing. It's not breaking my back, it's taking a load off. Ask yourself one question. Would it please God? Will it please not simply a distant, impersonal God, but it would it please Daddy? Would it please Him who has given me this life, this new life? Would it please Him who has died in my place and forgiven my sins? That I'm going to spend all... Would it please my Father? Ask that about everything in your life. And no, we're not going to start a bracelet campaign for it. All right, very quickly. F.F. Bruce writes about the culture in Thessalonica this way. A man might have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine who could offer casual gratification readily available and he could have a harlot for his own personal pleasures outside of the home. The function of his wife was to manage his household and to be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. On top of that, there were what were called the Kabiri, and the Kabiri were basically four deities. They were smaller gods, what we call demigods that they worshipped. Zeus is the big major god of Greece and Macedonia. But the Kabiri were four little undering, very mysterious gods. But they were worshipped daily because they were given, they were called the protectors of the sea. Of all who were sailors, they were their protectors. Kind of like Neptune could be looked at. Or Poseidon. But more than that, people that lived in coastal communities, that if you lived there, you wanted to be protected from the sea itself as well, and you wanted the traffic to continue, you wanted market day to be successful, you wanted to have to so you would give them little food items. But when you went to give them the food items, there was a, a regular weekly celebration from which many of the people were given the, the nickname the Bacchanai, because they would offer wine. And then wine would be offered to them. Bacchus. And then we get this term orgy because the drinking of the wine and the, the, all the inhibitions sexually, you know, all those were removed. And actually, it was a form of worship. Christians would have lived in Thessalonica, lived in that environment. And they lived in a Greek culture that said, it's okay to have a mistress for intellectual conversation. It's okay, and I'm going to apply it to today, it's okay to have a female or a male outside of the bounds of marriage that you can just talk to. You know, it's just kind of a, 
you know, kind of a soul friend. I'm not doing anything physically. I'm just kind of, you know, they're fun. My wife is not fun. My husband is boring. They stimulate me, but just intellectually. And then a concubine. You know, kind of a, they were a slave, but you know, just kind of the maid. That it's just kind of a, a servicing thing physically. But they're a servant. I'm their superior. And then the harlot, which in Greek is porne. I've got her for those very special desires and pleasures that I don't seek from a very ordinary and plain mate. Because, you see, I look to my mate as the mother of my children, the manager of my home affairs. I'll never leave her. I'll always be with him. But I've got to have this life over here. And Paul was saying, do not compartmentalize like that. Don't say, I'm worshiping on Sunday and I'm loving Jesus on Sunday and then live like the culture around you which says these things are okay as long as you are faithful to your mate and never leave them. You know, boys will be boys. Are there one night stands? Or you have too much to drink on the road? And it's just an indiscretion and I'll just never do it again. Or you know what? We haven't really been sleeping together regularly, and so it just kind of happened. It's really kind of her fault or his fault or whatever. And Paul's saying, no. No. You are different than the culture around you. You cannot worship those old gods. You cannot buy those lies that will destroy you. You are called to sexual purity. You are called to sexual purity to be devoted to one another, but also to be devoted to serve one another. Now, again, some of you are saying, well, I really, you know what? I really get that. I really, I really see that. I understand that. You know, I've, I've been exposed to a lot of Christianity, and, and I understand that. What does your sexual life look like right now within the marriage? Or if you're single, is your sexual life, could it be judged pure? Because the shocking thing, if you haven't picked up on it yet, is God sees the intimacies of our sexual life. God's eyes are in the bedroom. Not as a voyeur, He is our Creator. But he looks in the bedroom, and I believe that he's looking for two things. When you see here that it says that um, in verse, uh, four, uh, verse 3, it says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, which is a theological term for your progressing in holiness. Not only are we given this radical call that we would serve God, and not simply out of duty and discipline, but delight. I'm delighted to serve him. I'm going to please Him more and more. Not only are we called to do that, but we're called to do that more and more so that we continue to grow more like His Son who served every command and that with joy. And He says the very first thing, abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body. And the word there for body is vessel. And some people say that it's demeaning. If that means your mate, then it demeans them. Oh, they're just a vessel. Just kind of like a sexual receptacle. 
Other people say, no, that word was also used for your own body. body. But how can you, you know, the word for control there is acquire, as it were. How can you acquire something that you already have? Now, I will tell you, the majority of commentaries fall in line and say, it's about controlling your body. You abstain from sexual, you know, from, from sexual, you know, illicit sex, you abstain from that, you focus on your body, and you use your body in an honorable way sexually. Now, for singles, it means abstinence. J.B. Phillips, who wrote a, a Bible translation years ago, he basically says you cut off every avenue of sexual immorality. It can be the internet and pornography there. It can be coarse conversation. It can be being in certain environments or even certain TV or movies that begin to, to really begin to assault sexual purity. Cut it off and cut yourself off from it. Abstain, he says. That's the negative. Abstain. But the positive is use your body in a positive way, notice that if you look down to, to verse 4, it says how to control his body in holiness and honor. Use it in a way that pleases God, that's how we obey in holiness, and in a way that honors the other person. Let me tell you how you do this, particularly guys. You do not, I would say you don't demand in marriage, you don't make demands on the other person's body. You don't demand. You don't possess them as, as you were. You don't try to control them. You don't try to oppress them. You don't say, your body is mine. You do what I want. You don't demand. And I might say to females, and both of these apply to the man and to the woman. Both of them do. But just making a generalization, Men tend to be more demanding still to feed themselves. Not serving the other person honorably, but to honor themselves and to secure it for themselves. Men tend to be demanding of another body. Women tend to deny their own body. Don't deny yourself from your mate, but then also don't demand. The scriptures... Other than that, say, God wants you in marriage to find fulfillment for the very desires that He, as a created, as a creator, gave you. The pleasure that you seek, He is the author of all pleasures. But the pleasures that the devil and his minion would tempt you to are not the holy use of those pleasures, but the perverse use of those pleasures. The devil doesn't invent pleasures. He just seeks to corrupt them and tweak them to perversion. Then notice that it says that we do this mindful that Christ or God is the great avenger in heaven, that he's the great judge. Again, what is that about? There are people that are trapped, as it were, in very difficult situations. 
Some people are, feel trapped in singleness. And they suffer. And they agonize over the, the prison, as it were, of loneliness. How can I meet people? How can I, how can I when I feel like I need a person, how can I strengthen the bond that maybe one day we'll be man and wife? And many times they're strongly, strongly tempted to not follow the call to holiness and to act honorably and to please God, but to compromise to please themselves and to try to subdue, as it were, the, you know, to, to take control and, and be like God over their life and say, well, I will manipulate the process. And if we live together, I'm sure it will end in marriage. Or if I, if I compromise here, I'm sure it will strengthen the bond. For you who are in singleness, I will tell you, God is your judge and He's your avenger. He's the great vindicator. Let Christ, look to Christ as your husband. God will judge the inequities and the, the, the unfairness, as it were. One day, one day, but know that you'll stand before Him one day and say, God, if you called me to singleness, and such as it appears that you did, then I am standing before you in purity, by your grace and by your strength, that I present myself to you for your judgment. Same with married. There's a lot that happens in the bedroom that a human court of law will not do anything about, either in this country or out of this country. Sometimes it's called sexploitation, marital rape or marital cruelty, truly demeaning the other person. God says, I love my people and I so intended this for pleasure that when it's abused in a marriage, you will stand before me. Standing before, Jesus, standing before God's bar, though, when we hear those words, avenger, or, or living to please God, there's still something there that must be gotten rid of, and that is this. We're not going to stand before Him to be judged in terms of our salvation and the promise of heaven and hell. Not based on our behavior. Not not if we're a Christian. Because you see, the behavior of another, the perfect, the, the man who kept the law in perfection, he stood before God's bar of justice. And he said, I have obeyed perfectly, but I will take, as an innocent one, I will take the judgment that should rightfully be visited upon the guilty sinner. And God's gavel came down and He said, okay. And Jesus Christ was taken away to the cross and He died a death that we deserved. We will never, if you have received that, if you have repented, if you've turned from your idols and you've said, I received that death on my behalf, then as a Christian, you will never stand before that bar. Not for judgment unto salvation, either heaven or hell. But you will stand before God's bar. And He'll say, now that, that I have given you a new life, what did you do with that life? How did you respond? Did you act like a man or a woman who was in love with me? And obedience became a dance on the dance floor with me. 
Or did you never believe that when I forgave you, I forgave you of all. And all of heaven is yours. And you lived dutifully. And you plodded along. Religiously. Or you, you didn't even look at certain laws. You just were always living in drudgery in fear of this day. And he says, you're free. Now live. Now, Jesus Christ is our resource. Romans 10 verse 4 tells us that the end of the law, the end of the law, if you, the end of the law of righteousness is Jesus Christ. And what that means is this. If you look at any command, the command for sexual purity, if you look at that, then it drives us to Jesus Christ. Because we say, how do I become more pure? How do I become pure again? Through repentance. Repent this morning. And faith. Look to Him to give you strength when you face temptation again. Because you see, what happens is, is I'm looking to be filled by another rather than Jesus Christ. It's not simply stopping something, never, never to fill it. It's replacing it. It's saying, the hunger that I have after this, fill me with you. Fill me with you, the true beauty. Let the command drive you again to Jesus. And there you will find satisfaction. So when we come to this table, we come not as perfect We don't come as sexually pure. We come as the repentant who hunger and who thirst to be more so. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that on the night that your son was betrayed, he took bread, he took cup, and he divided it and he said, this represents me. So Father, as we come, we proclaim your death on our behalf. So we ask that as you would, as we would be fed, that we would see you feeding us these elements to strengthen us towards sexual purity, toward honorable marriages, toward a life as a single person that is holy and pure. And we would do so with joy. We need strength and we need a reminder of your grace to us but mold us and craft us to be a people that live in such freedom and in such a desire to please you even as you are now pleased with us in Christ. And at this end we pray in Christ's name, amen. I'm going to invite Kim